To get to what we're talking about here today, let me just start with a statement. And that is this, that ultimately the source of so much pain and joylessness in life comes from the idea that somebody owes me something. Did you catch that? So much of the lack of joy that we experience in life, so much of the pain we experience in life comes from this idea that somebody owes me something. And when we don't get what we feel like we are owed, that causes great angst, that causes great disappointment, that causes great pain in our lives. Let me frame it this way. Sometimes I say this thing to my kids, um, and I got to admit, sometimes I'm not really paying attention. You know, any other dads out there, your your kids come up and they ask you a question, and you're like, yeah, uh, you know, you're just, your brain's in a whole different spot, right? And so they come up and they'll ask me if they can do something. Maybe let's say go to ice cream, right? And I'll say this little magic phrase, "Um, yeah, maybe, right? Well, what do they hear maybe as? Yes, a promise. They hear it as not just, you know, yes, it's a promise. You know, it is set in stone. We signed a contract, right? And so later on, I don't even remember this conversation, and they come up and they'll say, Dad, you know, after we do this, can we go out for ice cream? And I'll be like, I don't think so today. You promised. What? Wait, wait, hold on. How? No, I think I said maybe. And yet for them, it is like an inalienable right right? Now, here's how this works for us grown-ups in the USA. Um, we, we have this great phrase in the Declaration, right, that um, all, all humans are created equal and in given God-given rights, inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, and what? Pursuit the pursuit of happiness. This is great statements, but here's what happens oftentimes in our hearts. We mistranslate that in our minds to because of because I'm American, I have a fundamental right to a certain level of happiness in my life. And then when we don't experience that, because come on, honestly, that's not the way life works, and nobody ever promised that. When we don't experience that, we start looking at either other people or God and feeling like we're not getting what we are owed. And here's how this works itself out. With others, if we're not careful... Before we know it with others, our relationships with others can begin to be very con- uh, transactional, which is if I do this, you're, you're supposed to do this, and this allows me to be happy or find a certain level of happiness. And, and what happens before, before you know it is so many times other people begin to exist only for your own happiness, that you begin to view the other people in your life as like you are the main actor in the movie of your life and everybody else is just a supporting role and their role is to help keep you happy. And then when somebody in some way does something that gets in between us and our happiness, we get really angry, don't we? We end up holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness then. Somebody owes me something. And if I don't get what I'm owed boy, somebody's, somebody has to pay, right? Now, here's how this works itself out in our relationship with God. Sometimes our relationship with God can become very transactional as well. Winston looked at this here a couple weeks ago in the parable of the prodigal son, and I thought it was a great conversation. Sometimes we can look like God is basically a cosmic vending machine. 
and that God exists somehow to keep me happy. And, and see, here's how this twist is. If I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, maybe, you know, if I'm a regular at church, or if I, if I get up and read my Bible, or if I tithe regularly, um, then God owes me a certain amount of blessing. God owes me a certain amount of happiness in my life. In exchange for me being good, I am owed a certain amount of things from God. And then, see, here's the problem is God never promised life would be easy. God never promised you would ever be happy. In fact, Jesus promised quite the opposite. He said, in this life, you'll have trials and tribulations, right? Life isn't going to be easy. But what happens when we start having this transactional view of God is before you know it, we find ourselves in this place of now feeling like God owes us something. And when circumstances don't go our way before you know it, we found ourselves either doubting the goodness or the love of God. Let me me just ask you, what what do you think God owes you? What do you think God owes you? Nothing. I, I mean, you know, if you believe God exists, that created everything that is from nothing, this massive, awesome God What does he owe us tiny little finite beings? The truth is, he doesn't owe us anything, does he? And so here's here's what happens. When you find yourself in this kind of thinking that God owes me something, it it does a couple things. It both completely misses the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is, is the good news that even though God owed us nothing, he chose to come and give us everything. And ultimately, if you find yourself living in this kind of God owes me, others owe me, I'm owed, I have a certain fundamental level of things that need to be coming to me, otherwise I'm not happy. If you find yourself in that, you will not experience joy in your relationships with others. You will not experience joy in your relationships with God. And for some people, you will even miss out on a relationship with God to begin with. And so we're going to look at this cool little parable to get started here. And, and then we're going to line through a couple of scriptures in Luke chapter 16 and 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can head on over to there. It'll seem like some disconnected thoughts, but we're going to show you, uh, hopefully if I do this right, we'll, we'll figure out how these all kind of tie together in this theme that we're talking about today. And to understand this little parable, I got to go back a little bit and set up a little bit of the context. Now, throughout Luke, there's this, been this consistent conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the elite religious leaders of the time, uh, one of the main groups of them. And uh, last week, what we saw is Jesus told this parable about investing in eternity, investing in eternity, having an eternal mindset, and investing our time and our resources, the things we've been giving in eternity by being compassionate towards others and by using what you've been given to reach others with the gospel so that when you show up in heaven, they'll be like, wow, it's because of you I'm here. It's this really cool story and thought we saw last week. If you missed it, you can go back to our website and catch up. Also, Jesus made this really profound statement. He said, you can try, but you, you will not ever be able to. You cannot serve God and money, or literally materialism, simultaneously. Because if these two things, you try to serve them simultaneously, one of them's going to always be primary. And you don't think you can serve God simultaneously while serving 
materialism. And right after this parable, right after this really powerful teaching, we see this scripture. It says the Pharisees, they're listening. Jesus is teaching his disciples and the Pharisees are on the outskirts. And it says they were, because the Pharisees loved money, they loved money. It said they were sneering at Jesus. They're sneering at Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and he, he teaches to these guys a little bit for a few verses. And Jesus rebukes them because their hearts are hard. And he rebukes them because they thought they were in with God because they were experts at keeping God's law and they were experts at keeping the religious traditions. But Jesus tells them they were ignoring the heart of God's law, the most important stuff, because they lacked mercy and compassion for others. The Pharisees thought they were in because they could trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. So just, we've been born in it, we're in it. We've been going to church all our life since, since we were little kids, right? We've been born in it, so we're in. And Jesus kept telling them, no, 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 you're wrong. And unless you recognize your need for God and you turn back to him, or the, the technical word is repent, turn back to him. You guys who think you're in just because of your heritage, just because you think you're keeping the law perfectly, all these things, you're actually out with God. And so that's the context that brings us to this little parable in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And here's how this starts. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, if you grew up in church, you may be familiar with this parable and know where this is headed. Um, but let me just start out by, by saying this, because there's been some uh, confusion around this. This account, this is a parable. And what a parable is, is a made-up story to prove a point. And so the reason, one of the main reasons you know it's a parable is he starts it just the same way as all the other parables. Uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, there was a man talking about the, the prodigal son, right? So he's setting up the story. There's a man a couple sons, and this is what happens. Um, just last week, again, another parable. It starts, there was a rich man just, just a short while before this. And then this week, there was a rich man. Now, the reason people think like, oh, maybe this isn't a parable is because this is the only one that has a guy named. And what's that guy's name? Lazarus, right? Now, there's, I won't get into it, but there's some really technical, nerdy stuff to go in and figure out who this guy Lazarus is. Uh, may be patterned after in the Old Testament, and it's interesting, but we won't go there today. But here, here you go. And so Jesus is setting up the scene of a parable, which is a story, a made-up story to make a point. And so always the idea is, well, what's the main point? Parable of the, uh, the sower, right? It's not really about agricultural practices. So it's not wise in parables to draw too many hard and fast conclusions based just on the story. The point is, what's the point Jesus is trying to make through this, okay? And so he sets it up. There's this rich guy. And what we see is he's, he's dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple, uh, fine linen might be white robes, and purple uh, means nothing to you and me, right? Other than some of you like purple and others uh, maybe not. But here's the thing. Purple is the color of royalty. And the reason is because in this day and age, they had one way to get purple. They would go out and there was this one special tiny little snail that they would make this purple dye from. 
And so it was very luxurious. Only the finest, you know, only the royalty really had the color purple. And I, I don't know, I don't know how they do this. If they like milk the snails, I don't think so. They crush this. I was picturing this and I didn't do enough research to tell you how this happens. One of you can tell me if you've nerded out and researched this, how they got this dye. But I just picture like them like pinching these little <laughs> snails and that's probably completely wrong. But the point is, this guy lived in the lap of luxury. Clothes, I mean, you know, there's all these fancy brands like Dolce & Gabbana. Is that a purse bag bag thing? Clothes, do they make clothes too? You don't know? It's like, we live in Western Colorado. We don't have any of those kind of stores, right? Levi's. Levi's, that's right. <laughs> we don't really value clothes. We give away bags of clothes. But in, in this culture, clothes were extremely, extremely valuable. And so this guy was over-the-top wealthy, and not only this, he lived in the finest of luxury. Parable of the prodigal son. To throw a huge party for the son that returns, the father kills the fattened calf. Well, for this guy, that's like every night, the fattened calf. He lives in the lap of luxury. Jesus is setting up this huge contrast. On the other side was this guy, Lazarus, who's a beggar. And this is so, he's shockingly poor. And not only that, the way Jesus tells us would be so that every one of these religious leaders that that are gathered around would kind of cringe and and step back at this point like a germaphobe, okay? He's got open sores all over his body. A beggar would have no way to to survive in this kind of culture. And so they'd place him at the gate of hopefully the one guy in town that could really help him. And every day they would carry him out and place him there. And he would have open sores all over his body. And that would mean he was ceremonially unclean. So he was untouchable. You wouldn't even touch him. You You would, you know, if you were a religious person of the time listening, you would avoid him by a significantly wide margin. And then... Add to that, Jesus had to throw in this little detail just to make the story really cringy. The dogs came and licked his sores. Nasty. Nasty. And so Jesus is setting this up, this huge contrast between these two guys. Then he goes on to say this in verse 22. There came a time when the beggar died and the angels carried him away to Abraham's side. Or if you have King James Version, it probably says Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So Jesus sets up this huge contrast and then he sets up a huge reversal here. A huge reversal. And let me just say this about before we move on here, about this word Hades. Because some of your translations, like the King James, would say, have the word hell there. In fact, an older NIV would have the word hell there. And that is technically not the translation of the Greek word. The Greek word here is is Hades. And what is Hades? Hades is the Greek word for the Hebrew equivalent of Sheol. And this is known as the place of the dead. And in Hebrew thinking, you had basically an underworld place of the dead where the souls of people uh, would go after they died and await the final judgment 
one day. And so Shale or Hades, uh, they, they viewed this as these two different kind of compartments or sections over here. One where wicked people went and one where righteous people went, where they were comforted with, with Abraham. This was the Jewish thinking. And this is the story that Jesus taps into as he's telling this. Hades is seen as the place where souls would await final resurrection and judgment. In fact, in the book of Revelation, at the very end, at the final judgment, we see this interesting phrase that both death, along with Satan and and all the demons and, and people who've rejected Jesus, both death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And so what he's talking about here is something different than what we, what we typically think of in the English language when we use the, the word hell. That's just a little tidbit here. Okay, verse 25. So this conversation's going on, and Jesus is setting up this incredible reversal. And so this guy asks him, and to show the condition of this guy's heart, did you notice how even when he is, he calls out to Abraham, he calls him Father Abraham, so this guy's a Jewish guy, and even though he's in torment, um, and, and this other guy is with Abraham, he still looks down on this guy and sees him as his errand boy. Hey, would you send the beggar over there? Let him dip his finger in water and come help me out. He sees this guy as his errand boy. Still, still in this condition, he's looking down on this guy. Really significant, right? Verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now, He is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And in this culture, this is this great reversal, because being rich in this culture was typically seen as a sign of being blessed or favored by God. And so some of the richest people in the culture were the religious leaders. And one of the things Jesus consistently gets on them for is, you know, they're really careful about a bunch of things, but they have no mercy or compassion for those around them. And in the culture, being poor or being in, in this condition that Lazarus was in, would, for, for many, they would think this is a sign of being cursed by God. But the truth is, Jesus sets up this huge reversal. And and the point is that wealth teaches us nothing about the condition of somebody's heart. Looking at your life and supposed ways that God has blessed you and your life materially tells me nothing about your heart. See, we we have this little phrase we, we like to use when things are going well, at least in our lives, and that is, God's just blessing me. And is that true? Well, yeah. But then is the opposite true that when things aren't going well in your life, God is not blessing you? And I'd say sometimes there's times of discipline where God allows seasons or things to come into our lives because of disobedience. But many times it's just a result of of living in a fallen world. And the point is, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you have been blessed incredibly, but not because of the stuff you have in this life. You've been blessed incredibly because you have salvation. And he has placed his Holy Spirit in your heart. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He didn't know you anything, but he did all that for you. 
verse 27. He says this, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, what do you do with this a couple thousand years later? What do you do with the scripture? Well, I think one of the things is don't miss just the surface level obvious application. And that is to be compassionate towards those that God places in your path. To not ignore, to not look down on those. And this is hard sometimes today to know what to do because we live so insulated. But then on the other side, every time you're on Facebook, there's another GoFundMe campaign because there's the tragedy. And and every time you look up on our 24-hour news cycle, there's something happening around the world. There's always needs, aren't there? And here's the key is to listen to the Holy Spirit, to really tune in. You know, when you drive by that person on the corner and there's that part of you wrestling with, well, I think they're probably just going to go out and do this with this. It's to be attentive to the Holy Spirit, right? Not to be unwise in the way you reach out, not just to throw money but at something, but to be attentive to the Holy Spirit and realizing there's great need around me that, God, I'm not going to let my heart grow hard to those around I'm going to listen to you, and I, as you prompt me, I'm going to respond. As I was preparing to preach this um, Friday, it was the weirdest thing, because as, as I'm studying, my phone rings, and it's an 800 number, and I almost never answer my phone if I don't recognize the number anymore, right? Because it's mostly robocalls. And this was a robocall, but it was from World Vision, a great organization that I've supported around this world. It was t- telling about this huge cyclone, you might have heard of it, Ida, that hit the uh, uh, Mozambique, basically, on the uh, west side of Africa, uh, excuse me, east side of Africa. Horrible devastation. I, I didn't even hear about that. I mean, I think I heard something, but it didn't register. There's all sorts of people in need, right? So I go from there and down and sit down, and I'm reading my commentary, and uh, I'm reading it, and, and it's this passage, and literally it says World Vision right there, like, there's great organizations like we're so like, okay, God, maybe you're trying to tell me something here as I'm doing this. And so I felt prompted, like, not, I felt prompted, I'm going to get on and give. We give support Convoy of Hope, which is another great organization. So I'm going to give a little bit to Convoy of Hope just to help in this situation. And that's, I think, not an obligation thing, but it's like, listen to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit prompts you in your life. Because you can't respond to every need. And yet, don't let the fact that you can't respond to every need close your heart out from being generous and compassionate to people. So that's the obvious thing. But then the other side of this, and here's what you got to know, is this parable follows some common folk tales that would have been known in the time and the culture. And it's like Jesus picks up this, these stories of rabbis and things and the afterlife, and he com- combines them in a language that people would have um, been familiar with and then uses it to, to make this point. It's not wise to assume that Jesus is giving us vivid details about the afterlife here, but 
when you put this together with all the other scriptures, here's some things you can understand. That even though this parable is talking about a different idea, final judgment and hell are a reality that Jesus in scripture talks about frequently. It's a reality. This life is your opportunity to respond to God as he prompts you. This life is the opportunity to respond. Says another spot in scripture, it is appointed to a man to die once and then comes judgment. So don't miss the chance to respond to God. And then the other thing is this, that there will be those who thought they were in because of their heritage or because they were born in a Christian family or because they did pretty good at keeping the rules, you know. They never hurt anybody. But they never turned to God or repented. They never acknowledged their sin and put their trust in Jesus. And what Jesus says here is through, through this story of Abraham is if you won't repent when confronted with the truth of Scripture, don't think something dramatic will change your heart. If you won't repent when given the opportunity. Jesus uses this line, even if someone rises from the dead. Because just a short while later, and just literally days or weeks after this, two people would rise from the dead. One of them, coincidentally, would be named who? Lazarus. In, what, in the most vivid messianic miracle, the Jews believed there were only a few miracles that only the Messiah could do. And one of those was raise someone from the dead who had been in the grave more than three days. Because they had this idea that the soul kind of hung out around the body, but after three days it departed to the place of the dead. And so Jesus comes in and he does a miracle that even in their own tradition, only the Messiah could do. And what? They still didn't recognize him. Just days later, they went on to do what? Crucify him crucify him. And then when he was raised from the dead, these very same people still would not listen to the reports of the eyewitnesses and, and the conclusions of guards that came in and told them the, the angels and all this. Instead, their hearts grew hard and they went on to oppress Jesus' followers and throw them in jail and murder them. And they thought they were in because of their family heritage, almost like God owed it to them, right? Come on, I have the golden ticket. You owe it to me. I'm in. I was born into this. And this parable is a great reminder that that's not the way it works. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about God owing us anything for our behavior or for our heritage. The gospel is all, all, all about the fact that we all have sinned. Romans says this. What? A few scriptures we know as the Romans wrote. He says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We're on an equal platform before God. None of us has done right. We're all born in sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah talks about this. He says, for, for we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And see, the religious leaders rejected Jesus and this good news. And this parable would remind us, don't miss your opportunity to trust Jesus, 
to turn from sin, to, to follow him. Let's move on. Luke 17, 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anything, anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Right after this parable, right after calling out the Pharisees, he, he, he points this out. It's a natural thing. Hey, we live in a fallen world. He says, hey, things that cause people to stumble into sin or stumble into unbelief, they're bound to come. It's just part of living. You've experienced that. You've been tempted. You've fallen to some of those, right? You've experienced seasons where somebody maybe has come along or you've seen something on TV and it's caused you to doubt and maybe creep towards unbelief. Maybe you've come back. Maybe some of you, you're just coming back after a season or a decades of going, you know what? I don't really think I believe any of this anymore. But then God's got a hold of your heart in that time and you're coming back to him, right? He says things like that are bound to come. But just because that's true, don't minimize that. Don't think that, oh, okay, it must not be a big deal. No, he says, but woe to them through whom they come. In fact, this is, this is one of the harshest warnings Jesus gives. He says, you know what? Just on a real practical level, it'd be better just tie a giant stone around your neck and tank you to the bottom of the ocean than cause one of these little ones. And in Matthew, we see he's got children around him. It's a serious thing. It's a heavy thing. For the unrepentant religious leaders who persecuted Jesus' early followers and crucified Jesus, heavy, heavy. For an unrepentant preacher who never really had a genuine relationship with God who embezzles money and by his actions causes people to say, well, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want anything to do with that. It's heavy. For an unrepentant professor that convinces kids there's no God. It's heavy. For an unrepentant person who says, just try it this once. Come on, everybody's doing it. It's not that big a deal. It's heavy. It's heavy, and there's gravity to this, and it should make us pause and ask ourselves, God, is there anything in my life that's causing someone else around me to stumble? And if that's the case, there's forgiveness, right? But you got to ask for it. you got to turn to God. Verse 3, the next part, he goes on. If, why? Because all these causes, all these things will come that will cause you to stumble. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. Now, how many of you, either one of these things, rebuking or forgiving, sounds like fun? Now, now here, in our culture, rebuking has gotten kind of a bad rap because it just sounds so negative, right? But, but that's not the heart behind this. The heart behind this is in the context of community where we're involved in people's lives. You care about someone enough to see the direction that their life is going, and you care about them enough to go, hey, man, I love you enough that, that this thing in your life is going to destroy your life. Stop. Turn back around. 
And if you want to know, like, what if they don't repent? Matthew uh, 18 talks about that in the whole process of going first alone, you know, not doing like the surprise intervention first time. You go alone, you deal with them, you bring to a couple other people, and then, you know, you bring it before to the church. And then if, if they still refused, it says you treat them like a tax collector and unbeliever, which doesn't mean treat them lousy. It means treat them like somebody that you just plead for them to repent and turn back to God, Right? And so that's 18. But here's the thing. Our natural tendency is not to do either one of these things very well. To either speak into people's lives and say, I see this thing in your life. Because we just, in our culture, we have this like aversion to awkward, don't we? In fact, for many people, and I think this is a big problem. Many people, um, you need this kind of community around you in your life. But for many people, they just get involved in the church just enough to show up and to, and to hear a message or, you know, to worship and get some goosebumps, but not enough to, ha- to have people around you that are genuinely involved in your life. That's not how the Christian life was meant to be lived. Why? Because there are things bound to come that will make you stumble. This idea that God owes me something, that can take you out and you need people around you to help you when you start thinking like that, you need people to go, no, 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 that's not the right way of thinking. I had this friend, Joe, not real name, but he had this kind of bad thing happen to him. Not like terrible tragedy, but just this bad thing happened to him in his life. And he was pretty upset. He was going to take all this extra work to take care of it. And, and, and he used this phrase of, of, you know, basically the way he was thinking was, God, I've been, I've tithed faithfully. I've served. I've done all these things for you. God, how could you do this to me? And it's this idea that God owes you something. And I was able to go, no, 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 man, you're, you're not thinking about this the right way. That's a transactional relationship with God. You need people in your life who will both speak into it. But then you also, on the other side, you need to have the ability to forgive. And that's a hard one. Up to what? Seven times, he says in here. Another spot, he says, how about 70 times seven? The idea is you just keep forgiving. When somebody comes, and and you know the difference, um, you know the difference with your kids when they're really sorry and when they're just sorry they got caught? You know the difference, don't you? You know the difference between, say you're sorry, sorry, and when they actually feel the weight of what they did to their brother or sister, and they come and say, Oh, God, I'm, I'm sorry. And the point is here, when somebody is really genuinely repentant, there, there should not be a limit to the number of times you give them grace. You give them grace. doesn't mean you're, you're just foolish and let people walk over you all day long. That's not what he's saying here. But it is a letting go of it. It's that thing where somebody else has wronged you and stolen that little piece of your happiness, and you let go of that. You say, you don't owe me. The debt is paid, which is exactly what your Savior did for you when he came and he died and he paid the debt that you could not pay. He gave everything for you. He gave everything for you. And he forgives you. He offers you forgiveness. And have you noticed the things in your life that you promised you would never do again? And you genuinely repented and... 
And then a ways down the road, it happened again, and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't even know if I can come, but you did. You can come again and again, because this is the way your God forgives you and gives you grace. You genuinely repent. Forgiven. Forgiven. And as followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to. And if you don't do this, you will just build bitterness in your life. Scripture talks about bitterness. It's like a root growing down into your soul, and it brings destruction. And if you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness in your life, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. You need to forgive. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Do you notice where that comes right after? This whole thing of uh, forgiveness. Like, there is no way I could do that seven times in one day. Increase our faith, he replied. Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. It will obey you. Now, this is a scripture that's been taken out of context uh, and twisted to turn God into a genie in a bottle. Not, that's not the point. The point here is it's, it's not the amount of your faith. It's not some great amount of faith. The point is, are you willing to take the next step of obedience and step out? Because great things can happen. Great things can happen. If you have, you, you, the point is, you don't need great faith. You need just enough faith to be obedient in your life. You need just enough faith to go, okay, I don't know if I can keep on forgiving, but I know I can forgive this time. And I, I can forgive again this time. And I can choose to forgive this time. And God, you're calling me to do this. And I, I don't know if I have the faith to take me down there, but I have the faith to take this next step towards what you're calling me to. I have the faith to get to that thing you're calling me to do. I have the faith to step out and, and pray for a, a neighbor. I had this happen on my way to church this morning. That's what, that's what that is, saying yes to that next thing that God's asking you to do. Verse 7, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? See, you also... When you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And, you know, we don't really have servants in our culture, right? Not in the same way they did then. I understand it a little because my wife made me watch Downton Abbey, you know. (laughs) So they like, you know, they serve the family, have this fancy dinner, and then they go eat dinner later in the kitchen. That's the point. And guess what? That's their job. Nobody's saying, wow, you're so amazing because you did that. And the point is here, God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing. And you can't put God in your debt. If you have this kind of transactional idea that, God, I'm doing this for you, and I'm doing this for you, and I'm doing this for you, now you owe me. You set your faith up to be tanked the instant things go wrong in your life, which is something Jesus promised at some point there's going to be trials. Life isn't easy. And maybe you've listened to some errant teaching that told, that told you because you gave one, God's bound to give you 10. He has to. Because you were faithful in this area, life should go really good for you. 
That's not the truth of Scripture. That's not the thing. The truth is God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing, and yet he gave you everything. The gospel is the good news that even though God owed you nothing, he gave you everything. He gave everything. He gave grace. He gave his own life. And and here's what you have to understand, that service to him and generosity in your living, with your time, with your resources, and forgiveness that you offer to others is an understanding, it's an outflowing of understanding the gospel. Otherwise, you will just find bitterness in your life and anger in your life, and you won't be able to get by it. If you have this idea that somehow God is in your debt, that that God owes you something, All these things that we're supposed to see. See, here's the hard part is, are there rewards? Does God give rewards for following him and for faithfully serving? Yes. But consistently in scripture, they're called eternal rewards. Not always guaranteed in this life. In fact, in the the hall of fame of faith, half of them had pretty awesome lives. The other half, you know, got cut in two and tortured and thrown to the lions. And yet they all lived by faith. And they were all commended. And the gospel is this good news that God gave his life for you. And that is, if you really get a hold of it, it should be so overwhelming that it just brings you to a place of saying, thank you, thank you. And so as we close, I want to invite you to stand. And as I pray, some of you need to just ask God for forgiveness for times where you've treated your relationship with him like a transaction for that attitude in your heart that somehow you've done your part and now he owes you this or that. Maybe that's caused bitterness or separation in your relationship and some of you need to ask for forgiveness. Some of you need to forgive somebody. Forgive somebody and just let go. Let go of that debt that you're feeling that somebody owes you something. You need to forgive. Some of you, you need to respond to the gospel that you've been trying to do it on your own. You think if I can just earn it, if I can just you know come to church enough times or whatever, I'll be okay with God. No, no, the truth is you need to embrace what Jesus did, that it's a free gift, that God owes you nothing, but he loved you and he came to die for you and he invites you to, to repent, to turn from your sin, to place your faith and trust in him. That's a gift and, the, and receive the free gift of eternal life. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And if that's you in the room, you can pray something like this, quietly or out loud after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I need you. I acknowledge I need you. I can't get to God on my own. And so I want to turn from my sin and follow you, Lord. I want want to have your life in me. Forgive me. I put my faith and trust in you. I believe that you died and rose again for me, that you are the son of God. And Lord, for all my other friends, I just ask that you would show them exactly how this applies and you would give them the courage to take that next step, the faith to take that next step that they need in following you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.